The Marvel Handbook, Episode A, 5, Aquarium, Arabian Night, Arcade, and Black Lash's Whip. Sean Barrick from the podcast Worst Collection Ever, along with Jen Stansfield. We do the podcast every Thursday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Talk about our silly comics every week. Make fun of our comic book collection, and we swear a lot. I'm not going to have a lot to contribute to Aquarian. I know he's a Jesus analog, one of the many, especially that come out of the Marvel in the 1970s. I think he was in Hulk comics. That's all I've got. Wow. You are not as versed in the Aqu- Aquarian, so I'm glad you brought me on to talk about this. First of all, this is in his Jesus phase. He was in my favorite Wizard Magazine gags where they would do the Mort of the Month and they picked Aquarian ones. Oh my God, we picked Jesus. Oh God, we're gonna we're done for, you know? And then they, <laughs> you know, they kind of snap out of it. But it's just, that always stuck with me. Once I started reading all these back issues, yes, he's in Hulk, but he's got this weird history because he wasn't always Jesus. He was... <laughs> Uh, I'm glad that Jesus is a, a thing you can aspire to in Marvel comics. He wasn't know, always Jesus, is. but he got there. He was a sub-Jesus for a minute, kind of doing freelance Jesus, which was the original title for Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. How good of a contractor was Jesus? Anyways, that's a bigger discussion. So basically, I think I have this issue where he shows up in fear with Man-Thing. He crash lands into Man-Thing's swamp, and he's this buff-looking, long-haired humanoid alien, but he's got the mind of a child. He's very naive, doesn't understand anything. You put him together with Man-Thing, a hard character they do as best as they can to you know explain his emotions and stuff because it's man thing he doesn't talk i do remember that issue though particularly because that's where i learned that man thing smells with his head like his face like he pushes his face against something <laughs> that's how he smells because he smells like the rocket that flies into a swamp and then like a one dart and I mean, then eventually his he head's like 40 percent nose so it's like you wouldn't think it'd be so difficult for him it's a strange anatomy that man thing yeah so he comes out and he's a full-grown man but he's got the mind of a child eventually ends up in Project Pegasus, and he's a ton of Marvel 2-in-1. And it's weird, because Ben has this tangential connection to Project Pegasus in these books. I don't know why he was always involved, but he was always hanging out with Quasar there, because I'm a Quasar fan. If you're messing with Quasar, you're getting a bunch of Wondar in your mix, too. You can't avoid it. And he's got the mind of a child, so he's calling Ben Unky Benji. He's talking like Franklin Richards. It's weird. He doesn't know why the scientists are experimenting on him, and he's hurting. It's very awkward. He communes with the Cosmic Cube, and he gains a bunch of knowledge and purpose 
and then he becomes Aquarian Jesus and then goes off and uses his powers. Now, his powers, basically all this guy does is negates energy. He absorbs energy and he can also blast it out. Okay, so he's strong. He could jump really high. The Cosmic Cube pumped him up. This null field is good up to 500 feet. Is it Unus or Unus? I know who you're talking about, but I don't know how to pronounce it. The uh, early X-Men villain. Yes, I was going to say Unus. He can't turn off this null field. It doesn't repel things, but it slows things down. Things loses kinetic energy. So you could shoot a bullet at him. You could punch him. You could throw a knife at him and it won't touch him. I can think at one point in the initial issue of Fear, he's in the town and like all the power is going out because he's walking down the street. Not only does he do that, but can't get near him. But he could never have an iPhone. He will never know the joys of the internet because he can't get close enough to keep Wi-Fi and the power of the computer on. He would not be able to do this podcast. So like books? <laughs> you know, people don't, don't, yeah. don't, nobody wants books anymore. So it's like he, he, at some point, probably in the next hundred years, this guy would just be up a creek. Aquarian would make a great manager at a Barnes & Noble. Help it. Well, actually, not a manager. He would just be a good associate because you can't have him bring anybody up. He wouldn't be able to ring up because he would just shut down the registers. But if you want to find a book, he, he would just be reading because he, he'd have to have be, read all the books because you can't go on the internet. <laughs> I mean, he's basically just out there being a hippie at this point. And then if you read the first 20 issues of Quasar, is it Quasar or Quasar? I always say Quasar. I think Quasar. Like he just randomly shows up and starts messing with these other, you know, Quasar doesn't know what to do with him, like he, but he knows him. And he's it's he's, he's in full, uh, you know, long haired mode and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm always interested when he shows up. I know that it's weird. It's weird, but I, I you know, sometimes yeah, you know, he shows up and I'm like, oh hey, what's he gonna do? He's gonna mess everything up. Everybody knows he's gonna be able to work any appliances. You know, if he shows up at a party, who's gonna make the you can't run a blender. So, so can have he's, he's that screw up friend that everybody has or has had in their circle at some point. And some guy like Ben's just gotta suck it up and tolerate this poor guy and kind of help him along on his way, I guess. I know. He's a drain. He's a literal drain. <laughs> but you know, everybody but, you know, but Ben, I'll say this. Ben, he wants to say Ben Affleck, but Ben Grimm tried his best with him. He really did. Ben's a good soul. He really tries his best with him. If you read those Marvel Tomb ones, he tries to treat this guy, you know, treat this cat with respect. You know, he doesn't like seeing him being taken advantage of and stuff. And the art on this one's by Mark Gruenwald, who of course went on to do a hell of a lot of Quasars. So you can see the interest was already there. Oh yeah. Yo, we're getting, we're making this happen. This Quasar book's happening, but we're getting Quarian in here. It's going to happen. R.I.P. Mark Gruenwald, by the way. Yeah. I, I dig that he basically has a whole Snuggie on each arm. I know. Looks comfortable. Really, really. I, I'm, I'm down with that. I, the rest of the costume I can do without, but I'm digging those leaves. So I have a tendency in my WWE 2K games to create superheroes and mostly G.I. Joes. I might try to create him this year if I can work out that outfit. Hi, this is Ryan Daly, the host of the Secret Origins podcast, coming soon. One of the templates for this show, too. (laughs) (laughs) I am not proprietary about any of this stuff. Arabian Knight, also known as Abdul Kamar, the chieftain of a Bedouin nomadic tribe in the wastes of Saudi Arabia. From a visual standpoint, uh, he is 
problematic in that he is the laziest, easiest description of what you would think of with an Arabian Knight. He has a turban pinned together with red jewel or stone at the top. He is shirtless. He has a sashed belt, baggy pants, and a scimitar sword. His first appearance, and of all things, Incredible Hulk issue 259 by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema during their run. It would be really easy to dismiss this character, but if you know me, if you know anything about my podcast, you know how much I love the Arabian Night, and if I have never put that out there, it is just a failure of messaging on my part. The reason I actually do find this character interesting and having some redeeming quality is I like heroes and villains, but just characters in comics that have some sort of signature object or artifact or weapon, something that is uniquely theirs. Maybe it goes back to my toy collecting as a kid, but an accessory that they can be packaged with, whether it's Captain America's shield or Thor's hammer or Silver Surfer's surfboard, something like that. The Arabian Knight actually has several of those things. He does have the scimitar as a weapon, and this scimitar is actually magical because it can shoot. It's a fire projectile weapon. He also has a cool mode of travel, not unlike the surfboard. It's a magic carpet. Is that a kind of stereotype? Maybe. I I don't know. I mean, it plays into cultural myths, cultural ideas that are they appropriated because they're famous in that culture? I, I don't know. But as a visual, I like it. I like the fact that he can fly around on this magic carpet thing. It is semi-sentient in that he can command it. It can go places without him. It can wrap around things. I think visually, you could almost treat the magic carpet the way the Marvel Cinematic Universe treated Doctor Strange's cloak of levitation in that it can wrap around and attack people on its own and it has its own little personality. And then he also has this sort of belt sash which he can use as a whip, a way of swinging on things if he needs to. It can extend farther out. It's a character that I think has some potential. I think visually, his look in terms of costume is the laziest part about him. It's uncreative, what you would think of. They really could have taken a second pass and made him more unique. But as an avatar, as a a culture, because he's called the Arabian Knight. So you could complain that that's a stereotype, but you could also look at him as a sort of patriotic figure from that culture, like the way you would look at Captain America or the Shield or other nationalist heroes. I don't think he's such a bad representation because he has a good character. He's the chief. He cares about his people. He's an honorable man. He's a descendant. He gets these artifacts from an ancestor that he found hidden. This ancestor died fighting off this demon in a temple. Yeah, I like the fact that he has a magic carpet and a magic sword that shoots fire and everything. So just from the artifacts part of him, I think there's some cool areas to explore this character. What do you think? Very tricky character to talk about because it's two white guys talking about this character. So for starters, I'm not sure if I'm in a position to have an opinion about this guy. But at the same time, I don't know any Arabian podcasters because there's not Arabian people. It's sort of like with Native Americans. You can say Indian or Native American, but if you actually talk to a person, an indigenous person in the States, they're from the Cherokee tribe, the Kiowa tribe. So they come from a specific place. They have their own specific tribal cultures. Being an Arabian night is sort of like being a Caucasian crusader or something. It's like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Another problem with the guy is that I grew up watching Looney Tunes and his basic look is the same as the Hassan Chop guy. You know, the Mm -hmm. one where Bugs Bunny be running around and the guy just be trying to chop off his head and stuff. Obviously plays very much into hold the Latin thing. A lot of problems there. A lot of stereotypical problems there. I'm not in a position to judge that not being of that culture, not being terribly well versed in that culture. Speaking as an outsider, speaking as somebody who is not 
not invested. I kind of dig him. I like the look. There is a problem with having a non-Western character running around topless, but given that we're fans of guys like Conan and Hawkman, he's a warrior with a sword. You don't necessarily imagine that being not civilized or anything. It's just like, no, no, he's just that kind of cool looking dude. The only problem being in the comics, he doesn't really seem to ever be portrayed as a hardcore warrior. He teams up with people to fight various mystical threats or he gets involved with the contest of champions. You don't think of him in terms of being like this raw fighter type of guy. So the fact that he looks like that, it's less about representing who he is and how he's portrayed in the comics as it is about reflecting these stereotypes. When this guy was created, this would have been, I think, the late 70s or early 80s. It occurs to me that he was created by baby boomers. And so almost certainly their whole conception of what Arabic culture would be is from Looney Tunes, Mm -hmm. Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope. Comedy from the 40s, maybe some Alvin and Costello, maybe Elvis Presley and Harem Scarum. It's a weird little mix of things. But at the same time, there aren't a lot of characters from that region who are represented in a way that is at all positive. It's a tricky thing because he's been around for decades. There's not a lot of representation. For us as white folks, sometimes the liberalism takes hold. Well, that's a stereotype, so it's bad. It's like, well, there's a stereotype and then there's iconography. And it's difficult to determine which is which unless you're from that culture. Right, right. Visuals notwithstanding, and that's really, I think that's what it comes down to, is the look of this character a stereotype. Because regarding his character, I don't think there's anything pejorative or negative that you would say about his character. He's an honorable man. He's a good fighter. He's a warrior. And he befriends Bruce Banner in his first story. Now I'm thinking that either the issue right before this or maybe right after it, the same team introduced the character of Sabra, who is an Israeli, but there was nothing really necessarily specific culturally or visually about her look. But she just happens to be this figure who just happens to be from Israel, from the same sort of geographic part of the world at the, at the time when he was right around the same time, because this was an arc when they had the Hulk traveling all over the world, and he was just popping through the Middle East during this time. Her cape comes from a, a prickly fruit that I think is supposed to be sort of a national fruit of Israel. It's a fairly basic look. I mean, it's an all-white costume, but that basic quality actually makes it stand out, because it, by not being elaborate, she doesn't look like anybody else. And yeah, it, it was a weird scenario in terms of how this guy came into being, because even though he's listed as being being Incredible Hulk number 257 being his introduction and they even stay on the cover introducing the Arabian Knight his actual first appearances in Hulk 250 there's one page in a story I think was reprinted in the Contest of Champions trade paperback where the Silver Surfer and the Hulk have a fight for some reason I didn't read the story and there's one page where the Silver Surfer is running around the world searching for the Hulk searching for his distinctive gamma signatures because he's trying to find him while he's still Bruce Banner and so there's a right, whole right. slew of characters that are introduced in single cameos uh, the Collective Man in China that might have been Sabra's first cameo appearance. There's a few other folks in that as well. The Arabian Nights is also there. And they even say at the bottom, you look for this and other comic books in the future where we're going to go into greater detail about who these characters are. And I'm sure part of it was they were setting up Contest of Champions and that's probably why yeah, it's in the yeah, collection. Yeah, I think you're right. One thing, I've always liked international heroes. I like when the world gets represented. It's always bugged me that there's such a high concentration of superheroes in the United States versus the rest of the world. And so I'm always going to give a bit more of a pass to an international hero than I would to one in the States just because there aren't a lot of them. And slagging on them feels almost like being ugly American because if that's the only hero you've got represented in a global phenomenon like the Marvel Universe, you're not really being helpful, I don't think. So I'm glad those characters are there. Being a guy who grew up on a official handbook of the Marvel Universe and being introduced to the broader Marvel Universe through this encyclopedia, it's so weird to me how many of the international characters are introduced in a year's span of the Hulk. (laughs) He's just on this international tour and all these guys popped up in that. And it's also funny because, of course, and Shag and Rob talk about this a lot on 
one who's who, you think that these characters are more significant because they're in the encyclopedia than they really are. It seems like most of Arabian Nights' history, his career, is being in reference materials in Marvel. I think yeah. like a substantial portion, like at least a third if not half his appearances, are just reminding people that he exists in these type yeah. of poems. I don't know which creators, but there have been a, an attempt to modernize or, or revamp this character, and I don't know who was it, but somebody was like, the old version was a bad stereotype, so they did a new pass at this character and gave him a new look. He's wearing khaki cargo pants and a combat vest or something. No kidding, it's like what you would associate with like a suicide bomber or something like that. And I look at that sketch and I'm like, this is, no, this is not the right direction to take this character if you want to get more of a positive spin on as a cultural icon or something like that. I'm sure it was well-intended. I believe they came up with that for a Union Jack series or miniseries. Mm -hmm. Mike Perkins, good artist, did it. If you look like the stereotypical Middle Eastern soldier, are you representing where we are today if so then you've got to get very specific about okay what region is he from what culture is he from what is he representing what are his goals when you have this more generic fantasy character you have a little bit more leeway aside from that first appearance where him and the hulk fight to apparently he had a cultural tie to a knight that had put down Gog and Magog from biblical scripture. These guys got loose again and he and the Hulk teamed up to put those guys back in the box. I think one of his second appearances, he appeared in a two-parter in Ghost Rider where he's fighting oil shakes and such. You can play to the fantasy of the character, that fantasy aspect where you're doing Aladdin, Disney profiting off of this Western idea of what Arabic culture should be. When you take that fantasy element and you're immediately associating it with things like oil shakes, it's like let's pile on as many different problematic elements as possible where at least if he's purely a fantasy creation and something that's sort of a figment of world culture you're divorcing it from some of those negative connotations he was part of a crossover that the X-Titles had in their annuals I think in 92 and it was a story that was supposed to set up a new version of Freedom Force as I recall I think Eric Larson and Fabian Nicias were going to do it and the design for Crimson Commando who had been introduced in the X-Men titles was basically going to be Super Patriot who Eric Larson absconded with when he went to Image Comics but they did made a point of setting up his becoming a cyborg and the way they did that is they sent the freedom force who if people are unfamiliar are mutants who secretly work black ops for the government kind of like suicide squad where they're criminals mm -hmm. and so they use, the government is using their criminal status to make them be their dirty dozen so they have this conflict with a bunch of uh, middle eastern super beings most of whom are evil most of whom are also terrible middle eastern stereotypes also with scimitars and the like the story is actually paralleling desert storm the gulf war arabian night is supposed to be forced to work with this group because they're supposed to have kidnapped his wife and his family and stuff it's such a squicky place to put that character and if he's going to reflect real world events are these the right people to be telling that particular story with that particular character and it's worth noting that we're having this discussion as our country looks down the barrel of going to war with another Middle Eastern country and looking at all those Gulf War era comics catching some of the same talking points and some of the same iconography as we're being confronted with right this minute it's been 30 years and it's been a week and it's been like yesterday you know it's like we've yeah. been here before i remember being in school being afraid that they're going to reinstate the draft and it's like mm -hmm. we're here again how did this happen yeah. and poor arabian night maybe put this character away for a while i definitely looked at a few internet things where they're like here are the characters of marvel wishes you'd never remembered he ever had in the first place looking at some of his appearances of marvel comics presents they make a point of showing that he has multiple wives and having them all nag him there is a little bit where apparently he worked with the pantheon so he was kind
kind of affiliated with the Hulk for a very brief period of time. And apparently he was working with that group of terroristic forces because he was actually undercover with the Pantheon. It's just a hot mess. And do you know what happened to this guy? Uh, no. I didn't either. As you noted, I could go onto Wikipedia and I could see that even though it's essentially a paragraph, it's surprisingly comprehensive considering how few appearances Arabian Night has had. It's pointed out that he had been killed. So I was looking through his various appearances and I saw that he had appeared in an issue of Thunderbolts where apparently there was a villain who sucked life forces and was powered by life forces of large groups of people. There's one panel where Arabian Night is falling off of his flying carpet. Then they just move on with the rest of the story. And apparently that's where he dies. He just like falls out of the sky and then they just assume he's dead. In comic books, if there's no body, they didn't die. Right. Even if there is a body, they're probably going to resurrect that body. It shows how little regard this character has in the halls of Marvel that this throwaway panel that nobody would have thought, oh, well, they just totally killed Arabian Night. How they were to do that? They totally did it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wonder if they retroactively said that that was his death when they wanted to redo when they wanted to introduce the new version. I feel like it. I feel like that couldn't have been the intent, especially because I believe that issue was written by Fabian Ecieza, who was writing those stories where Arabian Night and the other people were fighting Freedom Force. So it feels like they maybe had intended to do more of the character than they ended up doing. Let's talk about the actual entry. This was drawn by Mark Gruenwald. What do you think of it? It's good. Uh, it's fairly generic as, as just him him looking ahead, well defined, well muscled, a little inset panel below him has him on the magic carpet. I really like the art, to be honest with you. The body posture, it has a slight awkward quality to it that reminds me of Steve Ditko, especially in the face, but somewhat to the musculature as well. Reminds me very much of Frank Miller to the point where in an earlier episode, Odell Abner-Dracula had pointed out that he thought that Mark Runewald might have swiped a little from John Byrne. And here he looks Mm. like he may have swiped a little from Miller. It has a little bit of an exoticism to it because he's got the very sharp upturned mustache and a goatee. I think he looks really proud and heroic and as a handsome looking guy. I like the way that the musculature is feathered and everything. If he were a popular enough character to get a superpowers figure, I think this would be a really nice side picture for him. Given that Marvel right now is trying to be a little bit more representational and given that they actually have some people of descent writing for them right now, it'd be interesting to see what they could do with this guy to make him represent while also trying to figure out what the essential appeal of a guy like Arabian night would be i wonder if putting him into more of a fantastical magical realm like that like you were saying maybe that would work and maybe that would keep him in this kind of look and like the sort of like shirtless and put him in a savage world type of stories without making him himself barbarian type of character it would be cooler to keep him as this nobleman but in a savage world you could keep this type of bare-chested look if you wanted to integrate him into more of the mainstream marvel universe then i think you have to update his costume i don't like the new look but maybe give him robes or something that looked I, I don't know like an Assassin's Creed type of look or something maybe that would work uh, um, actually in, in one of the Marvel Comics Presents stories they had him in a sort of an all black or loose fitting uh, outfit and it, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go but it wasn't terrible either it could have been a lot worse yeah I definitely think you would want to play up the fantasy elements if we could have dinosaurs in the Savage Land we could have this little patch of Wakanda-esque hidden land where they do still have all the cool affectations you would expect from those fantasy stories. He's a fairy tale character and you can play into that. Yeah. I would like a story of like him, like, you know, just going up against a demon, something huge, like a Fin Fang Foom type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like just of like that scale and just seeing him go to war with like that. That would be a fun story, yeah. Yeah, get him in the, the worlds of guys like Doctor Strange. Let him yeah. go into some of those more fantastical elements. And I, I agree with you too. I actually I really like the 
magic carpet. It's funny. I've got an episode of uh, Comic Reader Resume coming up where I'm talking about how whenever I dream of flying, I'm never flying like Superman. I'm always flying like Starbrand where I'm standing. I just like the idea of this guy. He's not putting on his cape and flying like he's swimming. He's riding on this carpet ready for action. If I were to have my druthers, I would rather be on a, like a platform or something. I'd rather have something like a flying carpet. I dig it. I like that you can do different things with a flying character on a carpet than you normally expect to. It'd be very easy for this guy to be Hawkman. Uses ancient melee weapons. He's a shirtless warrior type guy. But in terms of their body posture, in terms of the general look and attitude, they couldn't be more different. In a comic book universe where there's so many samey, samey type characters, you want to have those characters that can be distinct, that can set themselves apart. And this guy can set himself apart in a way that generic urban vigilante can't be. Mm-hmm. With the magic carpet, just from a, a storytelling convention, I mean, it, you can have other people on the magic carpet with him, which gives him a chance to have dialogue and you can have more scenes in that. And he can, you know, start singing, I can show you the world and, you know, <laughs> do all those things. Not to be mocking, but Aladdin just made a whole lot of money. You know? sure this is Disney. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Marvel could benefit from a little more Disney being in the mix, just yeah. the, the same way that Disney has benefited from having a little more Marvel in the mix. Well, he got like 35 minutes on Arabian Night. I know. It's so weird. There are characters or concepts you think will be like quickie, quickie, and then they end up going long. And there are some where I'm figuring, oh, this is going to be really meaty. We're going to get really get into this. And I, whether it's the person I'm talking to not really taking the bait or just not having the oomph for it or the conversation never quite going there and it's like wow that ended up only being like five minutes okay I really thought that we were going to get more out of that so you just never can tell but what's nice one of the things is you know one of the reasons why I love Ohatmu is and, and who's who is it by extension is by necessity as much as you're going to pack in your new gods and your Batman family and all that kind of stuff you can't help but spend some time with these much more obscure characters and given that nobody's going to be doing a full episode on the Arabian Night anytime soon most probably this is the one chance those characters have is through this encyclopedic process where everybody gets a turn and if you've got somebody passionate who's got something to say that passion is going to be entertaining to the listener so you just got to go with it yeah, yeah. i want the toy too i want this figure <laughs> yeah that would be good let's see you get out of arcade's corridor of doom <laughs> oh, finally more characters this game was really getting lame <laughs> two down Hey, I'm Delvin Williams, a.k.a. The Dark Web, a.k.a. Felix Leiter. You may have heard of me from the Longbox Crusade. I'm also on MI6 Rookie Agents as a part of On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. The same crew runs both shows, Longbox Crusade and MI6 Rookie Agents. And that'd be me, my buddy Pat Sampson, Jared Albrecht, and Jason Albrecht. Arcade's whole deal is that he is supposedly a mercenary. And the reason why I say supposedly is the reason why I picked Arcade in the first place was because of the series Avengers Arena. I don't know if you read that or not. No. The whole idea of it was Arcade was laughed at. In the villain community, he was a joke because he came up with this whole murder world thing. And that's what he's known for, getting the X-Men and somehow making them go to his murder world. This whole elaborate scenario where he brings them in and they get trapped and they get all sorts of death traps thrown at them, but no one even gets hurt and then they kick his butt. So with Avengers Arena, he was laughed at about that. They're like, dude, you're a complete joke. His revenge was coming up with basically this ultimate murder world and he wound up killing off a lot of teenage 
characters like from the Young Avengers and the Runaways and stuff. But that's Arcade's deal. Murder worlds that don't really murder anyone. Until he went Battle Royale on them. Yeah. And sure enough, like that very first issue was kind of a shock. Uh, Wait a minute. This dude died? I, assuming that you might read it one day, I won't tell you who died, even if you knew the dude or not. But I'm like, wait, he died? Really? <laughs> Arcade killed somebody? Holy crap. I was absolutely stunned that he actually killed somebody because his whole thing has been he never has really killed anybody. And, well, he at least upped his murder count. I was introduced to the character. I think it was Uncanny X-Men 204. It was an issue where he kidnaps Nightcrawler and puts him through his paces. And I thought that was a pretty all right story. But I noticed that people never seem to take this guy seriously. And in the 90s, they just went hardcore into trying to darken him. They like, scarred him. I think they chopped off all his hair and stuff. And I think he works better the way he is because he already has that creepy pedo vibe going off. <laughs> the main thing is, like you said, if you have a murder world, you got to do some murdering. And it sounds like they took care of that in this most recent series. Yeah, they did. He could have changed it from murder world to like kind of imperil you world. I mean, it doesn't have the same ring, but goodness, he was not murdering anybody at all. This picture that they have of him for the handbook, it's appropriately creepy because he's listed at 5'6", 140. So he's a small guy. He has bright red hair with this ridiculous bow tie and this Liberace white suit on with heels. <laughs> of course he's going to have platform shoes on. Like a creepy dude that might be trying to overcompensate. He's clearly heightening. Yeah. Reading the handbook, I mean, even though his entry was short, it said a decent amount about him. They said, I mean, they said he's considered a genius. A genius. So, really, really, really smart. He has a natural aptitude for mechanics, architecture, and applied technology. Like, this dude should be a billionaire. Elon Musk. No, he's definitely in that class of villain where they spend a billion dollars to rip off a million dollars. Now, I don't know how he manages to put these things together, but I in no way diminish his accomplishment. It's just that maybe his career goals could use some work. Maybe. They never explained much. They just said he came into money. They, so they never really explained that. And then they mentioned that he designs murder worlds for himself and for other people. And his customary fee is $1 million per victim. Yeah. Which is, I, I, there, which there's is no a, way he's recouping. A, there's no way he's recouping his costs. Which is, a, they said it's a token fee. Apparently he doesn't even need the money. He just charges it just to charge it. I dig this guy because I know whenever it's a murder world story, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be fun. Cool with them going full on homicidal with it. Because I do think that he needed a greater sense of menace. He was being treated too much as a joke. You don't have to be like all cool and stuff when you're a dude like Arcade. He kind of has that Pennywise thing going on where he's so mm. like flamboyant. That works for him. The leisure suit and everything else, it makes him scarier than when you try to give him a buzz cut and scars and such. So I, I dig oh, it. Yeah. I always enjoy the stories when, when he shows up. I agree with you totally on that. When soon as you said 90s, and I'm always hesitant to do that because really when I started collecting Marvel comics was in the 90s. So I, I mean, I have an affectation for it, but yes, that was a very 90s thing to do where it's like, oh, I'm going to buzz my hair. I'm going to be serious. Like, oh, God, just stop. But that wasn't Arcade. Yeah. Arcade is very much who I would think of in this picture. And that's what they went back to. If the 2010s are any indication, what I enjoy is that a lot of writers, and in, in this case, it was uh, Dennis Hopeless. He went back and you can tell that he read the character and got back to the motivation of what the character was about. And RK was very much fighting for respect, but he was a little bit off-putting. 
and he went completely over the top in designing a murder world that basically was killing teens and heroes in their 20s. That was very well done and a very good extension of what the character was probably meant to be. I don't know who originally created him. I don't know if it's Claremont or not. I want to say Claremont and Byrne was uh, the first appearance, yeah. Uh, the, the art on this was okay. by Bob Budiansky, though. I'll make sure to give him that credit. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just a matter of he needed to punch his own weight. He was going too far out of his own class. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't checked it out, the series, I believe it ran about two years it's worth checking out. The artwork was good. The story was good. You know a story is good when you have fans writing in and they're like, you're just killing these people off just for storyline. And, and they're actually emotionally invested in the story. And they were. It was an emotional couple of years. More than just the shock value of it, it was a fantastic story. So Arcade definitely had his day. Blacklash. Ten tons of mean in a one-ton bag. No heroics, please, miss. Whirlwind, Blizzard, secure the perimeter. Remove those stone effigies from view and unload the electronic components. Carefully, Blizzard. We don't want them operational until we're ready for them. We have taken the Seacove, Mandarin. Without difficulty, I trust. Unfortunately, the beach was not deserted, but they will not be a problem. Well done, Blacklash. Carry on. Hello, everyone. Luke Giaconetti here. You might know me from such podcasts as Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, Get Back to the Wrestling, and The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, all of which are available at twotruefreaks.com. But today, I am here to talk to you about Blacklash's Whip. Now, the character of Blacklash, of course, started out as the character of Whiplash, but when he got a fancy new costume and a new code name, he got some new gear to go with it, including this whip that was designed by Justin Hammer. Now, it's a fairly straightforward device here. We have a power supply in the base of the handle. On top of this is the cybernetic interpretation circuitry and power controls, the cable reels for the actual whip piece itself, and then electric motors wrapped around the wheel. Then we have some magnetic hubs basically that allow this to be used either as a whip or as a nunchuck because it was the 1980s. And Blacklash could either extend the cable out as a whip or pull on both sides of the base and separate it and turn into a nunchuck. Very well known to me because the Toy Biz Blacklash figure came with both a whip and a nunchuck, and this was actually my introduction to the character at Toy Line and the accompanying Marvel Action Hour cartoon series. Now, a couple interesting things. The entry here has a little schematic where it shows that as the whip base rotates, the points of the cable lugs will actually split in opposite directions and rotate in opposite directions, and that the cables will continue to pay out as the motor accelerate the ends of the whip until they're at full extension at full speed, which they say is 11,000 RPM, enough to deflect a bullet couple of points here. The power supply, since this is, I'm guessing, a battery, since it is a portable power supply, it's got to be DC, right? Because all batteries are DC. They're not alternating current. They're direct current. So that means we have to have a DC motor on these two motors that are operating the halves of the whip in order to make it rotate. 11,000 RPM is not an uncommon rotational speed for either a 12-volt or 24-volt DC motor, but the issue of torque is not addressed. These cables are made 
of titanium. They say titanium leaf. Titanium is relatively strong while being light is one of the characteristics of titanium, but that's still a lot of weight. So it doesn't address torque at all. The rotational force generated by the two halves of the whip spinning around. I kind of question that. It's like, would Blacklash have to maintain all that torque himself in his suit? He doesn't have an armored suit like Iron Man. He just has a padded suit. So that seems like it would just spin out of his hands and that would be the end of that weapon. But obviously he must find some way to use it. I do like also they make a point that as whip base rotates, the point split out. That would suggest, as I remember from the comics, that Blacklash could use this either as a traditional whip or where he could make the ends of the whip spin around like they show here. So that would suggest that if it's a rotational movement of the wrist that gets the two ends of the whip to spread out, that a cracking motion, you can imagine that where you take your hand, bend it at the wrist, and snap it forward like you were going to crack a whip, would make the cable come out as a single piece in order for him to use it in a more traditional way. I do like that they do in fact indicate a second magnetic couple so that it can be used as a nunchuck. Of course, kick all this with a grain of salt. I am a professional engineer, but my background is not in mechanical engineering. It's in instrumentation and control systems. This is more of a mechanical device, seeing as it does involve the use of motors and a power supply, but some things, I think, translate. I like that they at least made an attempt to present that it would need a power supply and a motor in order to make this work. In fact, it says two motors. I'm not sure that you would need two. Again, most DC motors handle based on, you know, motor principle, right? So the action of the magnetic fields creates rotational force, which is how a motor works. But Justin Hammer did a pretty good job with this. Of course, Blacklash usually got teamed up with some other guys to go fight Iron Man because you can crack him and you can shock him with the whip, but he's Iron Man. He's got better gear than you. So here's Blacklash's whip. Hope this was illuminating. Thank you very much. The official listeners of the Marvel Handbook Podcast are 20th Century Geek Podcast. The 108th Sage, Adriano, Andre 79 Oliveira, Dr. End, Anthony E. Wasashin, Badder Bally, Between the Pages, Brian Mulvey, Brian Burnt, Caroline Wells, Chris Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Christopher Bush, Collected Edition, Constantine Quatsiris, Daniel French, Fishbonia Sound Design, Doc Strange, Debush, Derek William Crabb of Fanholes Podcast and History of Comics on Film. Dirk Ashton, who tweeted, Thank you RSB, Ed Moore, Eric Borden, Fiendish Fitz, Frank Goebel, Gautam Sheeran, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, Graves Make Roses Bloom, Into the Weird, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jack Swebb, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, Carl Ottersberg, who tweeted, Thank you so much. Happy Marys, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Curley Jr., Kyle Benning Likes Comics, Luke J. Canetti of Earth Destruction Directive, Mike Atz and Aliens to Me, who wrote, These episodes have been a great listen, thanks for all the hard work that went into them, Odell Abner Dracula, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky, Ryan Daly, Siskoid, Stimbled 5000, Talk Nerdy to Me, and Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace Podcast. All characters and concepts appearing in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the distinct likenesses thereof are the trademark and copyright of Marvel Entertainment, LLC, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. This has been a not-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcasts, with any copyrighted materials presented herein presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended. <laughs> <laughs>